Jenna Ellis in the morning on American Family Radio. Jenna, first, good morning. Great to be with you, the queen of talk radio in America. The left does not want to honor our freedoms, and we have a responsibility to fight back. I love talking about the things of God because of truth and the biblical worldview. Fill that void with a vision that runs so deep that it dilutes the woke agenda. Well, thank you, Jenna. Right from the beginning, I knew you, so it's an honor to be with you, and you're doing really well. Proud of you. Former legal counsel to President Trump. Ellis. Good morning. Good morning from a rainy day in Florida. And I love the rain. I love thunderstorms. And there was so much thunder and lightning last night. And um, it was actually the perfect backdrop for this story that I'm, I'm going to talk about later. I don't know if you've heard about this. It's, it's literally hashtag OceanGate. And if you haven't heard about this, this is actually the the most incredible story that is going on right now for a lot of reasons. Uh, so we're going to talk about that coming up in the second segment. So just a little teaser there. Uh, but to start this morning, Hunter Biden is avoiding jail time in a plea deal uh, because, of course, he is. And of course, you know, this is now Hunter Biden just wrapping up in a perfect little uh, bow all of his problems that if this were you or I um, and our name is not Hunter Biden, then uh, obviously we would be treated differently. But, you know, that's that the media and the government doesn't want you to think that they want to think they want you to think this is total accountability. And finally, you know, Hunter is now uh, actually being prosecuted by his dad's own DOJ. So we all should be saying, wow, this is total fairness. Look, this is accountability for Hunter. And so, of course, then uh, the the parallel of fairness of going after former President Trump, well, now everything is just fine. Well, Hunter Biden has struck a deal with federal prosecutors to avoid prison by pleading guilty to two tax crimes and admitting to a gun charge that could be dismissed. Uh, he ended up getting a, what's called a pretrial diversion program, uh, which basically means that if he completes the uh, the year or so where he does not have uh, any more drug use and complies with the terms and conditions up front, basically like probation, then the the charge is dismissed. So no felonies, nothing, uh, no comment on his laptop, any ties with uh, Burisma, any of the um, the pay-to-play uh, issues when his dad was vice president. I mean, so none of that. But let's just talk about these, you know, two uh, misdemeanor tax evasion charges that are totally accountability in this situation. So I had uh, my friend Brett Tolman on the podcast yesterday, and you can find that um, and the whole thing at thejennaellisshow.com. He is actually on a flight this morning, otherwise he would have joined us. So um, I want to just play a couple of comments for you because I thought he was very uh, precision in terms of his uh, former experience being a prosecutor at the DOJ. He's a former U.S. attorney. And uh, these were his initial comments on Hunter Biden's very sweet, sweet, sweetheart deal. This is clip one. Well, Jenna, thanks for having me on. I I will say that I personally presented almost a thousand firearm cases to the grand jury and um, have have prosecuted, you know, hundreds of these. Many went all the way to trial. Um, I am not aware since this, you know, these types of prosecutions began, I'm not aware of DOJ ever allowing a drug user in possession of a firearm, a diversion. 
Not once. I'm not aware of a single instance. Um, I'm also not aware when you're dealing with millions of dollars, <clears throat> I'm not aware of an investigation that took so long and yet found that only roughly a hundred thousand dollars was owed um, to the government, to the IRS government, and then charged uh, misdemeanor. I mean, it if it takes you that long to investigate, we're talking the movement of major amounts of money. We've already heard about possibly ten million dollars coming from the Ukraine. We've heard about shell corporations being set up. I doubt that any of that has been investigated. I think they were just delaying things, and then came out with the the misdemeanor charges, which is very rare. I authorized only a couple of those. And I've only seen a few of those in 25 years of, of being in the criminal justice system. So it wouldn't be so offensive if this is the way all of us might be treated by DOJ, but it is the way none of us are treated by DOJ except uh, Hunter Biden. So that's Brett Tolman, uh, former U.S. attorney, and he's currently the executive director of a great uh, organization called Right on Crime. And and he, I think he's absolutely right on this, that uh, this particular deal, and it was also interesting that not only um, has this investigation uh, been going on since a uh, since Trump's DOJ, and so for the last about five years, and um, likely millions of dollars of taxpayer money, but uh, this is also very different than how uh, President Trump's indictment was handed down, because the grand jury uh, that was in Hunter's case was just allowed to expire, and then the uh, there so there was no indictment it was just an information that was filed by uh, the DOJ because there are different types of charging uh, documents or ways that criminal charges can be filed an indictment specifically means that a grand jury uh, has has uh, handed down an indictment through that process and so the actual charging instrument is through a grand jury but uh, the the prosecutors, and in this instance, the DOJ, can also just file charges themselves, and that's usually through a complaint and information is is what the charging instrument uh, says. And so the the information was filed, and simultaneously in this letter from the DOJ uh, that was submitted to uh, the the district clerk, in the same letter this plea agreement was also uh, submitted. And so you not only have the charges that are being filed, but then the same day the plea agreement is, is reached. And so clearly there has been discussion with Hunter Biden and his attorneys. And in fact, you know, the letter even said that there's an agreement that was reached with, with uh, Biden and his attorneys. And that to me is also interesting because um, now it's just here, this has all been settled. It's all uh, you know, wrapped up in this nice little bow. And so there's no media speculation like what we've seen, um, not only through the Manhattan uh, district attorney's indictment and now um, the the indictment over the Mar-a-Lago documents for President Trump and all of this speculation of what's going to happen. Will there be uh, prison time on the line? You know, all of this stuff. None of that speculation for Hunter Biden. He just gets uh, two two misdemeanors, which he will get probation for, according to uh, the district or the the DOJ's letter, and then he'll get a diversion for this felony. Uh, gun possession charge. And what's also interesting about this is that according to uh, Brett Tolman, uh, the attorney general and the DOJ 
are typically their standard procedure is to charge the highest provable offenses, the things that they reasonably believe that the conduct fits, that they could prove uh, beyond a reasonable doubt at trial. They charge the highest offense and then work a a plea agreement, obviously, from there. Uh, But in this instance, even though uh, from pictures that even are in the public domain that are on uh, that were on Hunter Biden's laptop, you know we've seen that it's not only just gun possession, but there have been uh, there are pictures where um, apparently he is brandishing his his uh, his weapon and um, drug using and all of these other things. And so what the DOJ apparently did in this instance uh, is to actually charge not. Um, not the highest possible gun-related offense, but only possession of a firearm while using drugs. And in that way, uh, qualify Hunter Biden for this diversion program, which interestingly is actually against the public policy of the Department of Justice that I found online yesterday. And so this is what justice actually says. Absent approval by the Office of the Deputy Attorney General, any pretrial diversion program created by a U.S. Attorney's Office shall exclude any individual who is, and then they have six different categories, and the third category is accused of an offense involving brandishing or use of a firearm or other deadly weapon. So what it appears to be is that the DOJ did not charge Hunter Biden with an offense that would fall into this category of excluding him from the diversion program, but instead they charged him with an offense that would that would not exclude him from the diversion program so that he could uh, receive the benefits of this. And typically, at least in my experiences as a defense attorney, and obviously that's, you know, a lot more on the state level, And um, but, but diversion programs are typically used when someone uh, is, is eligible for rehabilitation. There are a lot of mitigating factors. Most often, at least in my experience, it's used for uh, primarily juvenile offenders. You know, people, you don't want to have a juvenile who then has a felony on their record and then, you know, can't get a job, can't get college scholarships and, you know, all of these compounding um, consequences and other effects. And yet for somebody like Hunter Biden, he should have been excluded from the diversion program, but yet he's benefiting of not getting a felony conviction on his record. And as long as he completes his probation up front, then according to the diversion program, typically then the charges are just dismissed and not even prosecuted. So it's basically like you're getting the benefit of a pre-trial diversion and then you, you get that benefit um, as long as you complete that. So this is really a sweetheart deal. And um, and so in this letter, I also asked uh, Brett Tolman yesterday about the ongoing um, investigations because the, the letter, at least from the DOJ, said that, you know, okay, so the, this is two misdemeanor offenses, pretrial diversion, but um, the investigations are ongoing. So what does that mean? And, and I actually thought that Brett Tolman had a very interesting response. So this is cut six. I'm a little more cynical as to why he said that. I think he said that so that they don't have to produce documents under a FOIA or a congressional request. Um, if there is something that they're investigating, I'd be shocked because I don't think this Justice Department is capable 
of setting aside politics and investigating the president and his family, the shell corporations and the millions of dollars that appear to be a pay-to-play scheme implemented by a very corrupt family. So I thought that was a very interesting comment because a lot of uh, the media and uh, commentary around this has said, well, you know, there is an ongoing investigation, so maybe we'll see some measure of accountability. Uh, But what Brett Tolman was saying there is that if there's an ongoing investigation, that is a basis by which uh, the DOJ could reject to turn over documents under the Freedom of Information Act and some of these FOIA requests. And so is this then just a, a measure of protection of the Biden family. I mean, this is how continually uh, there is no accountability for an overreaching executive branch that, in my opinion, is very clearly biased. And yet you have all of these leftist commentators that are immediately rushing to the talking point that I'm sure was distributed across the leftist media because they're all coordinated and they all know, you know, what's going on and what's up. And I'm sure we're, you know, we're tipped off that this was coming down the pike. And immediately they all said, oh, look, Biden's own DOJ is now prosecuting his his own son. And you want to talk about how there are two tiers of justice and, you know, they're pearl clutching and they're saying uh, this obviously shows that there is no bias at all in the FBI and the DOJ. And so conservatives, you just need to take several seats because uh, in no way of if this was at all impartial, then uh, or at all partial, rather, uh, and this shows impartiality, according to them, then Biden wouldn't have uh, prosecutors going after his own son. But you have to look at the actual plea agreement and you have to look at exactly what kind of deal he got that, in my view, was completely contrary to the DOJ's own standards. So um, so this was interesting. And you can uh, definitely hear more from Brett Tolman. Um, again, he was on my podcast yesterday. That's at the Jenna Ellis Show. Com. And uh, we do need to continue to call these things out and not just accept the narrative from the left and say, oh, sure, this shows that uh, there's no impartiality. You know, we're, it, it's it's totally fine. And and, uh, you know, it, it's just frustrating to me because as you sit here and you watch what the DOJ is doing, what the Biden executive branch is doing, it's very clear. And yet they are going to continue to use this, I think, to undermine President Trump's defense in his own cases of selective prosecution, bias, and ultimately jury nullification. So we'll see how it goes, uh, but we will be right back uh, with more here on Jenna Ellis in the morning. And again, you can find Brett Tolman at thejennaellisshow.com. Welcome back to Jenna Ellis in the Morning on American Family Radio. Welcome back. And okay, we have to talk about OceanGate. And that's literally the name of this company, um, which which I think is, is just remarkable in this entire story. If you have not been following this, I was literally up until 2 in the morning uh, the other night, just going deep into uh, not only this story, but also some of the conspiracy theories around it. And uh, and this, for so many reasons, is just, I, I think, one of the most bizarre things that I will ever read um, and that probably 
you know, may ever happen. So what is going on, if you have not heard about this story, is uh, that there is a small submersible, which I have now learned through all of my extensive uh, Twitter and online research of this, of course, um, that a submersible is not the same as a submarine, but it is, um, it is just, it's a smaller vessel that uh, goes underwater that's typically tethered to a, uh, a vessel and a craft that stays above water. So it, it just goes underwater. And so this little submersible, it's, it's the size of a minivan and carries five people, include, so one pilot and then four crew members. And uh, this particular submersible has just one porthole at the front and this thing is basically an underwater tin can because it it has um, a hatch that the the crew get into and is literally bolted shut from the outside so there is no way to open this thing unless you are on the surface and the crew actually come in and remove the bolts so there's no way to get out so the first question should obviously be, who would ever get into one of these things? Well, apparently, people who have a quarter of a million dollars can get on one of these things to have uh, Deep Ocean Tourism, which is this company, OceanGate, that offers this experience to you know, four individuals that are willing to pay a quarter of a, of a million dollars, two hundred fifty thousand dollars, as part of a apparently eight day excursion, get into this submersible, and what should be um, about a four hour round trip uh, mission, they call it, will go down and view through this little porthole the wreckage of the Titanic. So if you are wondering exactly, you know, where this is, um, there, there are maps online and, you know, all this stuff that in, you know, the middle of the Atlantic Ocean, um, the, the Titanic wreckage, of course, was found, um, you know, years later, I think it was like back in, in the 60s, uh, of course, you know, the Titanic, which sunk in 1912 and has been the subject of, you know, so much, um, so many books and, you know, even the uh, the the uh, the movie Titanic that was I think in like 1997 ish, um, and everybody's familiar with this. In fact, um, when I was when I was in I think it was college, um, and and I was uh, back in Colorado, in in Denver there was an exhibit from the Titanic that came to uh, Denver's Natural History Museum, and it was actually really cool because you got to walk through this and you know you start as if you're on the ship. I mean, it was really well done. So it's very immersive and you go through and you get um, you get a little portfolio or a passport of a person's story who was actually aboard the Titanic and you would go through this whole experience, see what it happened as uh, the, the ship hit the, the iceberg and, and ultimately sunk. And then, you know, as you're going through this, you're, you're looking at the story of um, the individual that, that you're learning about. And, um, and then you find out at the end if they survived um, and what their story was. And so, you know, it, it, it's, it's fascinating in terms of history. It was obviously an, a, an utter tragedy uh, that occurred on its maiden voyage. And there's been so much documentation and photos and all of this um, that you can get, you know, in a National Geographic magazine for far less than a, a quarter of a million dollars. Uh, but apparently, if you want to get on this little tin can and go about three miles uh, under the ocean 
and actually view it, you can uh, pay $250,000 for this experience. So this is apparently, I think, only the third time that this particular submersible, and the company is called OceanGate, which should have been the first red flag in my opinion, Um, and this is only about their third mission, and the more that you learn about this thing, it was basically MacGyvered together by, uh, you know, by just off-the-shelf equipment. It wasn't instrument rated by, you know, any um, valid company that does anything like this. And the thing that absolutely sealed this for me was that this is piloted and controlled by a PlayStation gamer controller that you can just get off the shelf. Yes, the, the pilot is literally guiding this thing by one of those little gamer controls. And if that were not enough, you are going to the depth of about three miles under the ocean. So this thing, um, this submersible launched, and, and nobody was paying attention, you know, this wasn't in national media, on Sunday, and an hour and 45 minutes into their journey under the ocean, into the deep ocean, it lost contact with the pilot boat um, or the vessel on the surface, and nobody has heard from them since. And so this is now these these uh, four tourists and the pilot have now been missing since Sunday afternoon. And according to the specs from OceanGate uh, company, there are, for instances of emergencies, um, which I think we could all anticipate that there might be some emergencies on this, you know, tin can minivan, uh, there is roughly 96 hours of oxygen and according to, you know, the, spe- the, the specs, I don't know if they have, you know, food and water on board. Um, we know what exactly this is, because if you look at some of the pictures, I mean, there are no even seats on board. You're, you're sitting um, just on the floor of this thing without shoes, no, no chairs even. And you're supposed to just go down for a couple hours, view the Titanic wreckage, and then come to the surface. But now this thing has been missing since Sunday afternoon. And I just cannot imagine how terrifying this would be to to be one of those five people that, that are on board. And um, so in the course of, um, you know, looking at this, and, and now a lot of people um, have been commenting, and, you know, you think, well, who could we possibly get as as a commentator to talk about this um, in terms of of oceanic experience? Well, Fox News, of course, found someone, and his name is G. Michael Harris, who apparently is an expert in um, in these kinds of uh, underwater missions and runs uh, RMS Titanic Inc. And this is what he had to say to Jesse Waters. This is cut ten. We carry O2 bottles with us in the submersible, and you also have CO2 scrubbers. And, you know, they both, the O2 will last longer than your CO2 scrubbers. And if those CO2 scrubbers go, and depending on what actually happened at depth, um, just not feeling good about it. All right. What's this thing like to be inside of, and what exactly are you doing when you're going down to the Titanic wreck site? Well, when we deploy, it's usually a two and a half hour drop 
down to the wreck site itself. We go down 3,980 meters and we spiral down um, a corkscrew action about three degrees per second uh, to land right basically in front of the bow of Titanic. Once we get down there, then we begin our grid searches and our research on, you know, the decay and everything that's going on with Titanic. What could possibly have happened? Uh, worst, worst situation is, you know, something happened to the hull and, uh, and our fear is, is that, you know, it imploded at around 3,200 meters. And is there anything that the U.S. Navy can do right now? No, no. I mean, I, I don't see anything that can happen at this point. I mean, I'm trying to be, you know, somewhat cautious and, you know, don't want to basically be the naysayer of what's going on. But I, when you're talking 6,000 pounds per square inch, it is a dangerous environment. More people have been to outer space than to this depth of the ocean. And when you're diving in these situations, you have to you have to cross your cross your T's, dot your I's. You have to do everything absolutely perfect and by the book. And you know, throw in a bunch of tourists in a new sub that you know was just created over the last several years. Um, it, it's not looking good, Jesse. More people have been to outer space than have been to this depth of the ocean. That that was shocking to me. And to say, you know, we're just now going to casually throw a couple of tourists on to this submersible and just, you know, go down and and what could go wrong? Um, you know, th this sounds like a combination of Gilligan's Island, but 2000 leagues under the sea. And and I am praying that somehow the Coast Guard and they, they now have this joint effort, and I've been watching, you know, some of the press conferences. You can go on Twitter and, you know, the, the, the American Coast Guard um, in coordination with Canada and, um, you know, and some other entities uh, have been get, providing updates and saying that the search area is as big as the state of Connecticut that they are looking at. And the possible theories are uh, that potentially um, there was an implosion uh, and that was the reason that they lost contact. And so obviously there would be nothing they could do. There is a theory that potentially the submersible, as it was looking at the wreckage of the Titanic, actually got caught in some of the wreckage. Because um, if you actually look at this, um, the Titanic, when it, um, when it sank, it split in half. And so the two halves of the ship, the ship came to rest on the ocean floor, um, separate from each other and then there's a lot of other debris around that and it's in a trench on the bottom of the ocean so I mean this is something that's very dangerous territory and and you have these tourists and it's and it gets even more wild than this because the people who can afford to pay $250,000 for this experience um, have apparently according to reports included a billionaire who um, is is from the UK and um, and founded this club for explorers and was very interested in uh, going on all kinds of adventures and had posted on his own social media that given the uh, the weather conditions surrounding the the ocean uh, in this particular area where the Titanic wreckage is located. Um, only one dive this entire year could possibly be attempted. And so um, he posted on social media, hey, a window has opened. And so we're going to um, 
start this dive uh, tomorrow, which would have been this past Sunday. And I'm just sitting here thinking, okay, so more people have gone to outer space than have gone to the steps of the ocean. And, you know, you're just a tourist with no experience whatsoever. I mean, this is not, you know, you're even a member of the Coast Guard or a Navy SEAL or, you know, somebody who is has lived on an actual submarine. And we're just thinking, sure, this is fine. Let's let's go on this, you know, tin can minivan and, um, you know, kind of do like the Mario Brothers thing with this PlayStation controller. Go and kind of just see some of the wreckage. and This will be fine. Uh, on what, what could have possibly made any of these people say, sure, I'm going to do that and I think this will be fine. I mean, I, I just, I cannot believe this. So I was listening to this TikToker. Um, who I think actually in- encapsulated everything that I was thinking in 60 seconds. So th- this is just this is somebody I don't I don't know who she is, but um, this was somebody who was also as fascinated with this story and frankly horrified. And, and we should be praying because a- apparently um, the 96 hours of oxygen will run out as of tomorrow, Thursday at about 1.30 p.m. And so even assuming that these five people could have survived that long and depending on what happened, all of these things, obviously um, the expert that was on Fox said, you know, it's, it's not looking good. But I am just praying that they find this so that we know what happened. But by some miracle, they find these people alive and um and can rescue them but this is what this tiktoker tiktoker had to say this is cut nine this entire submarine situation is like a direct indictment against the idea that rich people are inherently smarter than poor people because what do you mean you have to sit crisscross applesauce in the vessel what do you mean they have to bolt you from the outside like what do you mean that the whole thing is piloted by a knockoff brand PlayStation controller. And especially what do you mean you all paid $250,000 a person to do it? And like, of course, there's a level of sympathy that I feel because I would hate to perish that way. Like the level of dread that wells up in me at the thought of, of going out like that, horrific. But a larger part of me is just like, I would never do that. You couldn't pay me to do that. And they paid to do it. Like, it doesn't make any sense. Yeah, that 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 is all of everything that I was thinking in this story. So if you, too, are now completely fascinated and equal parts horrified and just like, this is the most crazy story going on, uh, just go on a search engine or on Twitter and Google OceanGate submersible, and you too can stay up until two in the morning tonight and get deep, deep, deep into all of the potentials, all of the conspiracies. There's even an orca whale conspiracy that I'm not even going to go into, which is just insane. But you too can then also go into this whole story and just be totally mind blown by all of this and so be praying for these people and also let this be a lesson to us that as pat sajak once said on will of fortune which my grandmother absolutely loved if the goal of the exercise is mere survival maybe want to skip that one we'll be right back with more on jenna ellis in the morning
Welcome back to Jenna Ellis in the Morning on American Family Radio. Welcome back. And Adam, my great producer, and I were talking during the break and just saying, you know, that this whole Ocean Gate story is is just incredibly insane. And um, and if you were thinking that, you know, hashtag Ocean Gate was the uh, just, you know, the, the name that people have given to this event because it's always, you know, it's Watergate or something gate, Pizza Gate, you know, all of these things. No, Ocean Gate is the name of the company. So uh, it's just it's just totally bizarre. But um, but but turning now to uh, something different. So I wanted to take um, the opportunity in this segment to um, to respond to some um, some great feedback that I've gotten from you um, who and I love hearing from you and you can always uh, reach me and reach um, our great team here, Jenna at AFR.net. And um, I've gotten a lot of feedback that not only um, do you love hearing from, you know, members of Congress, from newsmakers, uh, the commentary on News of the Day issues, but also um, you were wanting more education on the substance of the U.S. Constitution and constitutional law and some of those issues. So I filled in on um, Monday, I think it was, for our good friend Abraham Hamilton III. And if you uh, did not listen to that program, um, I'd encourage you to go back and listen to that. And I'll repeat some of that um, here in this segment, but uh, but also ongoing. But basically what I did through the course of that show uh, was just describe how we can advocate for a moral and upright society in the context of the Constitution and definitively discuss what is the difference between a policy or a law um, or a, an action by the government being constitutional versus unconstitutional. Because as we are analyzing and discussing news of the day and we are uh, listening to different newsmakers and members of Congress, whether they're Democrat versus Republican, uh, talking about a particular issue uh, being constitutional or unconstitutional, usually the way that at least the left tends to use that term is whether or not they prefer it. So if they prefer that uh, that they advance their own policy, then they'll say, oh, yeah, this is totally constitutional and this is fine. And uh, and they manipulate the language of the Constitution or just blatantly ignore it. And they advocate uh, for their policy, which is called activism. And conservatives, on the other hand, and, and sometimes, by the way, Republicans do that, too. And they're activists when they should be originalists. But conservatives who actually understand and want to protect the rule of law in this country will use the term constitutional correctly and say that constitutional means that the policy or the law that is promulgated abides by the specific delegation of powers given to government by the U.S. Constitution and through the Ninth and Tenth Amendment, which reserve all powers not specifically enumerated to the federal government to the states or to we the people. And so as we are analyzing the the top stories of the day and uh, commenting about the court of public opinion versus the court of law and all of these different things, um, I want to make sure to go through uh, some specific foundational, um, really education of the Constitution, our founding, um, some some history, as well as um, case law precedent, Supreme Court opinion, 
uh, to give you more tools to analyze this for yourself as well. Because we can talk about things um, isolated stories, which um, which is a great thing to do. I mean, we need to be talking about the news of the day and things that are going on, like you know the Hunter Biden story today. But we also need to have as Christians and conservatives that do care about our country, that do care about our rule of law. Um, And that's a basic assumption going into this, that uh, you agree with me that we should care about our Constitution and our system of government and following the U.S. Constitution and the mandate given from the Declaration of Independence that the sole purpose of government is to preserve and protect the rights that we recognize come from God, our creator, not our government. Um, so as we do that, we need to be armed and equipped with the rule book. And so um, how I've described this before is um, if you ha- if you like to play board games, and my family loves board games, we are total nerds like that, where we have, uh, my, my parents at their house have an entire closet just of all kinds of different games. And um, every time I go and, and visit my parents, um, one of our favorite things to do is to um, to sit around and play a board game and and talk. And that's one of um, one of the most fun things that um, that we all do at the holidays, and um, you know, and have all kinds of different board games. So if you play a board game, you have to play by the rules. That's the point of the game, and the rules will change depending on what game you're playing. So if um, if people have ever played Monopoly, for example, you know that the goal of the game is not to just get around the board one time and whoever gets around the board first wins. Those are other games. Um, it's not necessarily to have uh, the most money or the most property. It's to, the goal of the game is to survive the longest without going bankrupt, right? So your strategy is going to change depending on how you win that particular game. Your strategy in Monopoly is going to be different than your strategy playing the game of life or playing Othello, if you've ever played the game, or chess. Um, and how you can play and how you can move pieces around the board or uh, what exactly you're doing in the context of the game will also depend on what the rule book says. So the very first thing when you're playing a board game that you have to do is know the rules, know how, what's the goal of the game? How do you win? And by what, uh, what mechanism and what rules are you playing? And it's the exact same for our U.S. Constitution. This is basically our rule book for playing the game of politics. And what the Constitution does is sets boundaries and parameters by which each of the different branches of government on the federal level, and then also then the uh, the states, and they have their own constitutions, uh, uh, but by which, you know, the states can even enter the game and join the union. That's in Article 4 of the U.S. Constitution. Uh, but th- this tells each of the branches on the federal level uh, what their specific powers are, what actions can they take. And so from a very 30,000-foot um, perspective, something being constitutional versus unconstitutional is not just a matter of policy and whether we like it, we think it's a good idea. It's whether it goes against the rules or not. Does it violate the rules? And we could, playing the game of Monopoly, think, you know, hey, this is a great idea. I want to just jump from, you know, boardwalk um, over to 
uh, you know, free parking and I just want to hop the entire board. Well, there's no mechanism in the rule book that allows you to take that action that, that goes against the rules. That's not, and it's not that the rules are silent on it. It's just that there's, there's no process, there's no turn, there's no card, there's no roll of the dice that would allow that move. And so in the same way, there are so many actions that Congress, federal executives, the administrative state, this uh, corrupt, absolute behemoth of the deep state unelected bureaucracy take that they just can't. There is no power in our rule book of the Constitution to allow them to take those actions. And so by definition, those actions are unconstitutional. And so I wanted to give you the, the tools to be able to recognize an action, not just whether we popularly like it or whether it is um, Republican, uh, promulgated action, so therefore we think it's probably good, or it's a Democrat promulgated action, so therefore we think it's probably bad, or, you know, siloed within the two-party system, or this uh, sort of tribalistic mentality, because as conservatives, we need to know our rule book better than that. We should not say that an action is or is not constitutional based on which piece on the board is trying to take that action. And, and that's what activists do. They would say, well, we really want the little Scotty dog, which, by the way, if I'm playing Monopoly, that's always my piece. Uh, we really want the Scotty dog to have preferential treatment. We want the Scotty dog to prevail. So therefore, we'll let the Scotty dog take an action that the top hat and, you know, the little iron can't take. That's activism. And that's not allowed if we are equally applying the rules to everyone. So we have to know what the rules are first before we can call out an action as constitutional or unconstitutional. And so if we make an objection to a, especially executive actions like on, on Biden's level, or if we are advocating for an action like uh, the state of Texas actually taking control of their border and saying, yeah, the governor should invoke uh, Article 1, Section 10 of the U.S. Constitution, that's actually saying we are applying the rules and we are saying and calling out actions as, hey, that's against the rules, or, hey, this is a power that's not being utilized. You know, hey, this is a get-out-of-jail-free card. This is a take-another-turn. This is a, if you roll doubles three times in a row, hey, sorry, you know, you're going to go to jail until you roll doubles again and can get out, right? These are things that we have to be aware of and understand as conservatives uh, go in the context or, or comport with our rule book. And that, that's all that the U.S. Constitution is. And so when people object and say, well, where is God in the Constitution? And, you know, God is never mentioned in the text of the Constitution. So, haha, we are not a, a moral society that is founded on biblical Christian principles because God isn't mentioned in the Constitution. Well, of course, that that is an absolutely absurd argument. And of course, he's not, because all the Constitution does is provide the rules, provides the specific limited powers to the separate co-equal branches of the federal government and reserves all powers not given to the states or to the people. It's just the nuts and bolts of the rules. It's not talking about the mandate to government or the overall philosophy by which our founders created this document and 
chose a constitutional republic at the founding of our country. The Declaration of Independence expresses the political philosophy of our American experience and our great American experiment and the 50 laboratories of democracy. And what our declaration requires of our government is the recognition that our rights are pre-political. Our rights existed and have existed since the very beginning of time when God in Genesis 1-1, in the beginning, God. In the beginning, God created. That is the very inception of what our founders recognized. They recognized that it is God our creator, not our government, that gives every human being individual rights and then governments, wherever they are created later, at a later time, and nations are created and boundaries and the geography of political uh, philosophy and political science, um, the political boundaries of nations and governments that are imposed in civil society. And we need government. Government is actually an institution that God himself ordained, just like the church institution and the family. But government came later. The actual first institution that God created was the family. And we see that in Genesis 1 through 3. So when civil societies are created uh, in time and space, like our American founding, then our founders recognized that our rights came first. And the sole purpose of government is to preserve and protect those rights because we all have to live together in community. And so politics, by definition, is interacting with each other in community under a common law. That's where we get this term, the common law. And we do that through statutes. We do that through here in America, giving our government specific limited powers by which to fulfill that mandate. And that's what the Declaration of Independence recognized. And it was novel for the first time in world history that, and other than Old Testament Israel, which um, of course was more of a theocracy, which specifically and expressly America is not, we do have a separation of jurisdiction and of boundaries and of authority between the church and the state. That doesn't mean what the leftists would like you to think it means, but we have jurisdictional differences. But in our civil society, for the first time in world history, our founders specifically recognized that in order to obtain protections from the government system, we didn't have to give up any of our individual rights. Our founders said, no, government is obligated to recognize pre-political rights. And so therefore, we are going to create a system that best preserves that. And so they created, through the Constitutional Convention, this wonderful system of government that we know as our U.S. Constitution. So does it talk about God specifically? Well, no. But the political philosophy of the Declaration and of the Federalist Papers and of all of the arguments surrounding this, the founders debated and discussed. So we need to know what our rule book says. And so I want to take a segment every day to talk about our rule book and to give you better tools to understand not only our wonderful system of government, but more of this philosophy. So I love that you are giving me feedback. We're going to continue to have newsmakers on. We'll talk about the news of the day. But we're also going to do a segment starting on Monday, every day here on Jenna Ellis in the morning, to talk about our wonderful system of government, our political ideology, because I want you to be able to look at a rule and say, wait a second, 
no, 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 Scotty Dog can't do that. And you better roll again. <laughs> All right. So thanks so much for your feedback. You can uh, talk to me, Jenna Ellis, or sorry, just Jenna at AFR.net. And I will see you tomorrow morning. The views and opinions expressed in this broadcast may not necessarily reflect those of the American Family Association or American Family Radio.